0: Please find the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. And I want to read verse 4, verses 27 through 30. You understand, just by way of review, that the Sermon on the Mount came at the end of the first part of the earthly ministry of Jesus. His ministry to that point had been one of healing and miracles and casting out demons, and the crowds were following him in great multitudes. But Jesus was not impressed with the crowds. In fact, he was distressed that they were getting the wrong impression about what it meant to be his follower. They thought that to follow Jesus' meant to get on a big bandwagon and just have a ride down Main Street... And so Jesus got his disciples together and in essence he said I want to tell you gentlemen what it really means to follow me. This is what it means to be my follower. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said following me is poverty of spirit and mourning And meekness and suffering, that's what it really means to follow me. Now I need to remind you of two things about the Beatitudes. One is that one builds to the other. That is, the third Beatitude grows out of the second and the first and on and on. So the order is exactly perfect. One builds to the other. And if you change the order, none of the Beatitudes will make sense. The second thing you need to know by way of review about the Beatitudes is that the Beatitudes define the Christian life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is how you live. And so the Beatitudes give a definition of the Christian life. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount gives a demonstration of it. And so in essence what he's saying is this is is the principle of the Christian life. And then I want to show you the pictures of it. I want to show you how you can understand what I'm talking about when I tell you what's really involved in following me. And so he gives a demonstration. He gives an illustration of what it means to mourn so that we may be comforted in verse 27 and following. You have heard, it, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish, than for your whole body to go to hell." Now when man seeks to build a better world, he always focuses upon conditions. He says, I can change this, and this will make a better world. When God wants to build a better world, he seeks to change character. Man thinks that if you change conditions, you will change character. God knows that if you change character, you'll change conditions. So that man always begins on the outside and seeks entrance to the center. He always begins on the circumference, tries to change that out there and move to the center. And God always begins at the center and moves to the circumference. And that's what the Beatitudes are about. In other words, Jesus is giving us a demonstration of the changed character that He wishes to effect in the lives of His followers, how He's going to change them from the inside to the outside. Now, it is obvious that Jesus is not primarily concerned about conditions. He is concerned about conditions, and He is concerned about the circumstances that surround your life, but not primarily, not like we are. We're, we're concerned about conditions. And for example, um, some, some of us will sacrifice and compromise biblical truth in order to, to improve condition. Young people sometimes will sacrifice the most precious possession that God has given them in order to be popular. And sometimes business people in the business and marketplace will sacrifice and compromise biblical principles and truth in order to succeed or to get ahead because to us conditions are most important. Jesus never did that. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was present, there was a terrible social evil that was present in the world called slavery. I know how you and I would have dealt with that. We probably would have you know, protested, marched on Washington. We would have written our congressmen, carried placards, abolished slavery. Because we think, you know, that if you change conditions, you can change the world. Jesus never once lashed out against slavery, strangely enough. And he never attacked. That doesn't mean that he approved of the condition, nor does it mean that it was acceptable to him. It just meant that Jesus knew that even if you change conditions and you don't change character, it doesn't do you any good. And he understood that if you change character, the result of change changed character will affect the circumference of one's life. And so Jesus, in essence, gets his disciples down and says to them, Gentlemen, if you will give me your life, If you will follow me, this is the change that I'm going to affect in your life. Now remember, that one beatitude builds upon the next. And so last week we looked at the fact, at the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And we said that what that means, that in that area of our life, in The human spirit, that place where man communes with God and communicates with Him, in the place where man stands before God, he he must understand that he's absolutely bankrupt. He's a sinner and nothing else. He's a beggar and nothing else. And he stands with nothing to commend him to God. And the result of that, says Jesus, is that it ought to cause us to mourn, mourn. That word in the Greek is the strongest word to describe distress and sorrow. It means to weep as over the death of a loved one. It means to break out in loud lament. Some of us cry inside, but this word means you can't hold it inside. It means to be bent over in loud lament. I experienced this word this week. On Tuesday about nine o'clock at night, I got a call at the house and. Somebody said, Pastor, could you come to the hospital and minister to these people, this family who's been in this terrible train wreck? They said, there's nobody here, no preacher here. We'd appreciate if you'd come and help. And so I went as quickly as I could. When I drove into the parking lot of the, at the emergency area of the hospital, I saw this woman out there. It was the mother of this daughter who was killed and her daughter was killed and her daughter-in-law and all of her grandchildren. And she was walking around in the parking lot, bent over in loud lament. And I saw a man sitting over on the curb, and I just went over and kind of sat down beside him, and I put my arm around him. He was sobbing and saying, why, why? He was weeping over the death of his own wife and two children. I experienced that word this week. So when Jesus says that we ought, when we are made conscious of our sin, it ought to bend us over in loud lament. And he uses a Greek word that means that this is not just some isolated event. It should be the characteristic of our life. Now, what's he talking about? What's he mean by that? He means that when a person becomes aware of his own bankruptcy before God, that he is a sinner and nothing else, the effect of that realization ought to bring to him the deepest sorrow, the deepest Lament. Now, there are some folks who think that the Christian life is just one big happy experience, one ecstatic, exuberant experience after the next. Not always is that true. I mean, it was a whole lot easier for David to play on his harp than it was to hear Nathan say, Thou art the man. And it was a lot easier for him to write Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, than it was for him to write Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned, and my sin is ever before me. What Jesus is saying is this, that every man ought to be aware of the fact that before God he is bankrupt. And not only be aware of that, but that that ought to cause in us the deepest kindness, of sorrow. And I think, listen to me, I think that's what this church needs more than anything else today. I think we become too sin conscious. I think that our heart has grown cold with regard to the consequences and the effect of sin. I think we see our world through eyes that are too dry. And as Jeremiah said, we have lost the ability to blush at sin. Now, why should we mourn over sin? And why should sin cause us to weep as over the death of a loved one or to loudly lament as over one who had lost something precious? Well, for three reasons. Watch this carefully. We should mourn first of all because of the penetrating power of sin. I want you to read with me again verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. What Jesus is saying is this. You may have an idea that sin is something that kind of lies on the surface and that all you've got to do to deal with it is to abstain from the act. But he said, I want you to know that sin goes deeper than the surface act. It goes, it, it eats into the tissue and it goes all the way to the heart. And if there is the desire, the act has been committed. And the foremost condemning words found in scripture are there, already in his heart. Have you ever noticed how lightly we have dealt with the subject of sin? Does that distress you? One of the most dangerous attitudes that we could have towards sin is to tone down its awfulness. William Dolby says that sin is in, in itself is a quest for God. Listen to what he said. He says, sin, quote, is a quest for God. The man who got drunk last night did so because of the impulse within him to break through the barriers of his own limitations. To express himself, to realize the more abundant life. He wanted, if just for an hour, to live the larger life, to expand his soul, to to, to trod on untrodden paths, to gain for himself new experiences. Why, he said, the drunken debauch is a quest for life. It's a quest for God. Sin is rising up in treason against the sovereign of this universe and behind every sin that is present in our life is a gracious God who is grieved because of it. And because we think that sin is a surface thing like a Kind of like the algae, the scum that kind of floats on the top of your favorite fishing pond that's kind of a source of irritation and, 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 and kind of a problem, but no big deal. You know, we, we think it sin's kind of like a lint that gathers on a blue suit. And because we think that, we think that, that the way to deal with sin is by surface issues. I mean, just get him to come to church, he'll be okay. And there are four or five principles that we follow, you know. Uh, you got to pray, you got to read your Bible. You've got to give, you've got to go to church, you've got to go visit. I mean, as long as the guy does that, he'll be all right. It's kind of like the difference between a Christmas tree and and an apple tree. We bring that Christmas tree in, we set it in the house, and we decorate it. And its beauty and its value is determined by all these beautiful decorations we put on it. And we stand back after we have it decorated with all these ornaments, and we admire its beauty and when Christmas is over we take the decorations off and we throw it in the garbage because the value of the Christmas tree is determined by what is put on the outside it's different from an apple tree the beautiful luscious fruit of the apple is born because of the life that's within it and Jesus said sin does something that ought to cause us to mourn it goes all the way to the heart and destroys the life and it doesn't matter how much You add how many virtues you add, how many habits you subtract, how many efforts you multiply. Sin goes deeper than that. That ought to cause mourning. Second, he said we ought to mourn over sin because of its perverting power. Now read again with me verse 29. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. In other words, mourn in loud lament because of what sin does to the right eye and the right hand. Now watch carefully. Why the right hand? Because in biblical terminology, the right hand is the most useful. It's the most important. Revelation says that he put his right hand upon his head and said, be of good cheer. The Bible says that He upholds everything by His right hand. In biblical terminology, the right hand is the most useful. What He's saying is this watch, that the right hand and the right eye are the most useful and valuable gifts God has given you. The eye represents everything that's pleasurable and attractive, and the hand represents everything that's useful. In in, in the Old Testament, when somebody was guilty of a theft, they'd cut off his right hand because they knew he wouldn't be useful without it. And so what Jesus is saying is this, you ought to mourn because sin takes the most precious, the most useful, the most valuable possessions of life and destroys them, perverts them, and makes them your enemies. Did you know that The most heinous evils, the worst evils in America today did not originate with God, did not originate with the devil, but God. Did you know that? Now, wait a minute, you say, whoa, now, whoa there. Guy's preaching heresy, listen to me carefully. The greatest evils that exist in our country today did not originate with the devil, They are those precious, valuable gifts that God gave us that sin has perverted and destroyed and has made our enemy. America has become obsessed by sex, enthroned, exalted sex. This precious gift that God gave as an expression of love between two married individuals, sin has come to pervert and destroy so that that Immorality that has been enthroned in our country threatens the very moral fiber of this nation. Everybody who has been to the hospital knows how important drugs are. If you're gonna cut on me, I'm not gonna let you, you know, just by giving me a bullet to bite on and a snort of old crow, you know, to kind of brace myself. If I'm gonna be cut on, I want some drugs. I want some painkiller. Anybody who knows... Anything about pain knows how valuable drugs are. And this valuable gift that God has given us in modern medicine, sin has perverted and it has become an enemy that seeks to destroy us while we live. And God has given us the precious gift of the family and the home. And there's more hell in homes than in hovels in some cases. And there are some of you this morning who are living in literal hell in your home and you'll get out of it as quickly as you can for that which is this precious, wonderful gift has become a source of pain and heartache and abuse. And Jesus said we ought to mourn for the fact that sin has come and has taken these precious, valuable gifts of God and has perverted them and destroyed them and has turned them on us. One last thought, please. We ought to mourn because of the perishing power of sin. And he said, if your right hand cuts, offends you, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Are you listening? For it would be better for you to go through life maimed than to perish in hell And there it is. It would be better for you to go through life with one hand and one eye than to perish in hell. And what Jesus is saying is this, that sin has an awful ability to cause us to perish in hell. There's that word you don't like. There was a time when in every denomination, from pulpits in every denomination, preachers thundered a message on hell. But we started mocking them, you know, and we started making fun of hellfire and damnation preachers. and They became the source of our mockery, and therefore most of those pulpits and most of those preachers have vanished. And most church members feel it's not a bad loss because who wants to hear a sermon on the H word? I mean, like cancer, we'd rather not talk about it. And so we say, Jesus, preacher, talk to us about something that makes us feel good. I mean, preach us a sermon that makes us smile and gives us happiness and joy so we can go out and face this cruel world excitedly and happy. And Jesus said, Let's talk about reality, and let's talk about the fact, and let's don't turn our head away and look away from the reality of the fact that beyond this Christless life is an eternal hell, where there is intolerable suffering, where the fire burns unquenchably, let's don't Let's don't turn away and deny that reality. Let's, let's talk about facts, he's saying. I listened to Wayne Ward, the professor of theology at Southern Seminary preach about 15 years ago and he was, his assignment at this conference was hell. He preached on hell. Not an easy subject to preach on, as a matter of fact. And I heard him tell this story. He was a bomber pilot in World War II and he said, that uh, He remembered one day some of his uh, plane came in and crashed on the runway and burned. And he said, five of my best friends perished in the flames. He said, it's been 20 years ago, it's 15 years ago when I heard him preach, it was 20 years before that evidently, he said, and it's been 20 years and I've not been able to escape the sound of their torment as they cried out in the flames and perished. Beyond this Christless life, the reality is, is absolute, utter darkness. Beyond this Christless life is this intolerable suffering. Beyond this Christless life is this haunted, tormented memory. Beyond this Christless life is a fire that never ceases. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. You won't like it there. And the people who are there, you won't enjoy being with. And from that place comes the intolerable suffering and the anguish of it. You won't like it there. So Jesus said, when you think about what sin does, it ought to cause you to mourn. Can you say the H word without tears? Yeah, you can because your heart is like mine, it's cold. And William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army said, we don't need seminaries. He said, if God would permit me to take all the preachers just for one hour to the abyss and have them stand beside the gates, of an eternal hell, just to peek inside one time, just to hear one time the cry of anguish and the curse of derision. And he said, I could take them back to planet earth and they would never cease preaching. F.B. Meyer was talking about those who perish in the flames when he wrote, then like a rush, this intolerable craving shivered through me like a trumpet call, oh, to save them. To perish for their saving, to die for their life, to be offered for them all. And so George Whitfield would stand and preach and say, I'll go to prison, I'll go to death for you, but I'll not go to heaven without you. And George Truitt, they found him shortly before his death, standing in Baylor Medical Center, looking out the hospital window about the 10th floor up, looking out across Dallas, and those on the outside heard him saying, oh, people of Dallas, don't go to hell. People of Dallas, come to Jesus. Can you think of it without mourning? What a strange thing that you and I can live just three yards from hell and not weep. And so, Charles Finney, the great evangelist, preached on hell in upper state New York. This before is before his wedding, before his marriage. His fiance was present. She wrote him a letter. A good, Dear John letter, a goodbye letter. She wrote him a letter after that. This is what she said, Charles, I know you love me, but when you stood and the power of God fell upon you and you began to preach, you didn't look like the Charles that I love. You looked like a tall angel wielding a glittering sword cutting at the heart. You looked like an angel with a sword of judgment and I forgot that I loved you as you preached the awful message of God with a heart of tears. No, we don't lament. And no, we don't mourn. Not as Abraham who mourned over Sodom. Not as Moses who said, blot me out, but not my people. Not as Samuel who wept all night over Saul. Not as Jeremiah who was called the weeping prophet who lamented like an archangel. Not as Ezekiel who once ate dung in order to describe the pitifulness outside of God. Nor do we weep like Jesus as he looked out over Jerusalem and the scripture says shook with sorrow. And I'm convinced that if you and I could see our world this morning through the lens and the eyes of this doctrine that it's better to go through life unpopular, maimed, ridiculed than to have one perish in hell. We could not but weep. And so Jesus said, You shall be comforted. I used to think that meant that somebody would come pat you on the head and say, it's okay, son, brace up. I thought it, I used to think it meant that, that somebody put his arm around you sometime and say, I want you to know I care, so be comforted and, I, and feel comfort. It doesn't mean that at all. I discovered that word there means, comes from the same word that John uses when he talks about the paraclete, the heavenly advocate. And I discovered that that word is the same word that Jesus used when he said that when I go away, the Holy Spirit, the paracletos will come and he'll walk beside you. And what Jesus is saying is this, that if you catch a glimpse of what sin is and what sin does in your life, in the lives of others, and if the effect of that glimpse bends you over in loud lament, there is one beside you who feels the same way. And if you can imagine walking down a road in this direction, and you saw someone coming to meet you from this direction. And as you all met at point of reference, you turned, he turned, and went with you down the rest of the road. That's the idea of being comforted. Oh, hear me, friend. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you'll never feel the pain of the hurt of this world anymore. It means that you'll feel it like the one who walks beside you. And you will have arrived at what Paul was seeking when he said, oh, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sorrow now if we were to measure today whether or not we follow Jesus by the pain we feel over human sin most of us will be a long way down the road let's pray together Oh, Lord, grant to us a vision of our own sin. Help us, Lord, to see the destiny of a Christless life, both for ourselves and for the people who will ride home in the same car, sit at the same table, sleep in the same bed with us, And let us feel today pain of sorrow for that. For I pray in Jesus' name. Is there anybody here this morning who would get up out of his place to come and say, Pastor, if I were to die today, I'd be separated from God from now on. I want to come. I want to make my reservation. I want to send on ahead and get reservations. I want to come to Jesus. I want my sin carried away, covered. I want to be saved. Anybody want to do that? Maybe as someone, as one came in the early service, someone you would like to come and say, Pastor, I want to come and join this church. I want to place my life here. Or maybe there's someone here this morning whose heart has gotten cold. That's not what you want. You want to pray, God, give me the burden of a burning heart. Would you do it while we stand to sing? We invite your response.